Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to the MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. Uh, I'm Tom Clark and it's great to be back after a bit of a break with another opportunity to speak to one of our prominent colleagues from around the health and social care archipelago. As we drift closer to the anticipated formalisation of the ICSs through the Health and Social Care Bill, things aren't necessarily falling seemingly into, seamlessly into place. Tensions within ICBs, PCNs are facing internal and external pressures and little clarity about anything beyond June, even roles people will be doing and how they're going to get paid. So I'm here to help you uh, help keep you as close to the change as possible uh, with the help of another special guest who's leading the change. Today, I'm joined by Debbie Morgan. Debbie is the Director of Service Improvement and Transformation at Cambridge University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. Originally joining the trust, uh, joining the NHS in 1993 to become a clinical cytogeneticist, Debbie moved into NHS management in 2001, undertaking a wide variety of roles, including commissioning and in service improvement across the local health system, and has worked at director level for over nine years now. So Debbie, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Can you just describe for our audience the, the role that you currently occupy and a bit about the system that you work in? Yeah, no problem, Tom, and uh, delighted to be here this afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, so I work in a, a large um, teaching hospital. So um, we've got um, about 11,000 staff and uh, we're part of the um, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough integrated care system. Um, and in terms of my role, um, the remit, main remit of that is around establishing a culture of sustainable continuous improvement across our 11,000 staff and um, supporting colleagues with strategic improvement programmes. I'm sure we'll get on to some of those, uh, perhaps virtual wards. Um, and then also um, the team is responsible for uh, supporting colleagues around our productivity and efficiency challenge. Um, so we're, we're just sort of finalising those numbers at the moment. And you know, absolute recognition that in terms of our sustainability, it's so dependent on working with partners across health and social care. So from an improvement perspective, it's not just about within the four walls of CUH, it's thinking beyond that. So a lot of active conversations regarding that and very much see that a lot more of our future work is going to entail system work. And so it's yeah, incredibly important. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And I think just from your description of your role there, we can hear that you're right at the very heart of, of kind of a lot of the NHS agendas at the moment in terms of integration and, and everything about kind of the uh, elective recovery and, and post-COVID. Um, we, know, we know a lot has changed in the last two years, but can you just explain briefly how life at the Trust is different than it was pre-pandemic? Yeah, so um, so there's a bit from a personal perspective and then a sort of more, more broadly. So you know, if I think back to, gosh, uh, more than two years ago now, um, it was a sort of, I think no one really knew exactly what was going to happen. And um, suddenly um, we had to put in massive amounts of change pretty much overnight. And, you know, seeing how with clarity of purpose, um, everyone came together and and put in place some remarkable changes. And if I think, you know, something like um, virtual outpatient appointments, to, so to keep our staff safe, to keep importantly our, as well our patients safe, um, things that would have ordinarily have taken us perhaps years um, to do, it was taking us, you know, um, you know, days, maybe weeks, um, in some instances, you know, overnight changes. Um, what's been interesting then over this period of time, well, we had all the, the period around um, um, staff isolation, so losing critical staff members, so we were very much depleted on how many staff we had available to um, provide care for our patients and do all the back office functions. 
And then from a personal perspective, um, I had to shield because of my uh, long term health conditions. So again, we had staff members shielding. But through that, I very much saw the opportunities around virtual work working and a much greater focus, rightly so, around staff well-being. Um, so we've got a continued emphasis as an organisation on supporting our staff, um, and that's critically important. But now, as many of the audience will know, um, is um, looking at elective recovery. So all the backlog of our patients that have um, being created because we weren't able to treat them because of lack of capacity, um, how, how we actually deal with that. And you know, over the last two years, um, we had a pause in a number of key things nationally. So mentioned earlier that my team were responsible for supporting colleagues around productivity and efficiency requirement. Um, so that was paused over that period and now having to reintroduce how are we going to achieve those um, productivity and efficiency requirements? What can we do differently? in light of how our staff are feeling. So I think it's important to say that our staff, you know, not all of our staff, but some of our staff are feeling very tired. Um, you know, I think there's a, a number of colleagues that I speak to, um, perhaps looking at early retirement, um, doing things differently outside of perhaps health setting. So um, we've still got, you know, massive um, challenges from a workforce perspective. That's not just ourselves, that's across the board and internationally as well. Um, so it's an ever-changing landscape, um, but the change that has happened across the NHS and, and well, health and care has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, but also then recognising the impact that that's had for our patients and those patients who unfortunately haven't been able to be treated or their treatments were late and the knock-on impact that can mean for our staff as well to have to have those very difficult conversations. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, lots there to unpack and we'll, we'll get through some of that as we go, I think. Um, does it feel like a positive place to be at the moment within the NHS? Um, I think there's um, lots of opportunity. So, um, and it's just as well I say that because of my job. Um, but there are huge, huge opportunities. Um, but it is incredibly challenging sometimes to take forward those opportunities because we need to engage with our um, staff, clinical and non-clinical. And when there are so many pressures upon people, trying to get that headspace to be able to have that engagement can be incredibly challenging. So I think it's it's a sort of a, a mixed economy of, of, of how it feels at the moment. Um, and again, that isn't just within the sort of the hospital setting, um, that's, that's across the board as well. And of course, all the changes that are going on at the ICS level. So another sort of reorganisation, having to set up statutory organisations across the country, the time, the energy that that takes. And then again, that means that colleagues don't necessarily have the available headspace to be able to engage with some of the service redesign. So it's been very mindful of a, a lot of those human factors that are at play at the moment. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, you talked about lots of different internal external pressures there and I suppose for you uh, within the leadership of the trust there's a lot to juggle on a daily basis so when it comes to approaching change what are the drivers for the trust and possibly a bit for, for the ICS at the moment? So um, patients absolutely at the heart so how can we improve um, patient outcomes how can we improve patient experience how can we improve staff experience then there's something about sort of um, going back to what I mentioned earlier sort of the elective recovery side of things so how can we um, what can we do differently that will enable us to create capacity to treat our patients who are on those waiting lists um, our emergency demands again that's that's an ever increasing uh, problem across the country um, what can we do differently um, how do we continue to keep our staff and our patients safe um, so there's multiple drivers and I think it's important to say that cost 
is is one of those, but it isn't the overarching one. Um, and then sustainability from a trust perspective, but also a system perspective. So from that financial aspect, um, not just looking at the finances of individual organisations, looking at it from a whole system perspective. So you know that's been very much a sea change over the last sort of few years. Yeah. Okay. And and that that's a really interesting one there that the sustainability piece and. I suppose if we were having this conversation three or four years ago, probably that'd be right down the bottom of, of your considerations and costs might be right at the top and, and everything else juggling around in the middle. It, it, how, how are things weighted when you look at cost, workforce, capacity, when you're approaching a conversation about what should we do? Is, is the kind of a, a weighting between different things or is it a, a bit more of an equitable approach? I think it sort of depends, Tom, and, um, you know, at the end of the day it is about sustainability um, and you know, if I think about our productivity and efficiency requirements that that challenges around what can we do differently to enable us to do more activity for the same cost compared to 1920 levels or less cost so that that definitely is a factor but um, you know we always have to um, take into account patient outcomes how can we provide the best possible care within the available resources and then those sort of qualitative um, aspects from a patient and staff experience perspective so I, I would like to think that there is um, equal weight and that sometimes it can be slightly sort of weighted maybe um, more on the sort of the financial aspect um, but they are, they are all equally as important and you know um, patient safety incredibly important as well well yeah okay and, and i guess probably every proposed change has its own equation almost doesn't it that some yeah. things you know that there may be less of a consideration around estates if it's not something that's going to take up a lot of space or it might be that it it it, it is by its nature an improvement to safety so that's kind of easy, easier to accommodate so so in terms of approaching these conversations and and kind of deciding what and how to change who's driving that change at the moment are you driving things internally is it the ICS uh, is it clinical networks where, where are the ideas where are the initiatives coming from um, I mean it's a whole mixture Tom so if I think about sort of at the ICS level so uh, from our system perspective um, we've um, got our um, ICP um, so that's that's linked around um, the south of our patch so sort of co-located with Cambridge University hospitals um, and colleagues within that they've had to prioritize looking at their data their population what's what's most important uh, for their population and thankfully um, their priorities um, very much align with um, our priorities but then um, our organization so we're over a billion pound turnover um, we have to then think about what what are our priorities on top of that so um, we're we are established in terms of five clinical divisions and non-clinical um, um, areas so it's then dependent on each of those ones in turn thinking about what are the priorities they've horizon scanned they've looked at um, what are the the available service developments that they need to be able to support they're considering their workforce requirements um, so so change comes in many different guises and of course there's ones then very much from a national directive perspective so um, it would be remiss of me not to mention at some point the national planning guidance so um, very very mindful of all the requirements within that that we need to achieve um, so that will then sort of um, enable colleagues to have conversations to say based on that whether it's outpatients urgent emergency care whatever it might be where do we see that the best opportunities are and using data to be able to inform where we might want to sort of place our support resources to take that forward um, model hospital data you know, there's a whole raft of things that we would look at there um, so yeah there's there's definitely a, a multitude of areas and I think it's also important to remember about non-clinical areas as well that you know it's not just about clinical pathways some of this is about non-clinical processes and how we can become more efficient and I think you know linked into my role our staff our patients our partners all the answers are out there it's how do you tap into that and you know 
enable to support people to take those ideas forward. Yeah, brilliant. And, and that bit you mentioned there, the, the National Planning Guidance. So when taking a, a, a national document like that, which obviously has sort of a specification of things that you should be doing, which way around is it? Do you look at that and look at the things within there and say, how are we going to achieve these? Or do you have a list of things that you want to do and then think, OK, well, how do we use these to meet those criteria? Um, it can be a mixture of the two, um, but I think sort of the main overarching one, and, and actually this really helps from a, a, an improvement perspective, that the way that the planning guidance has um, been written, there are some very clear um, measures within that. So, um, you know, we've used a lot of that as our overarching aim statements of what do we want to achieve. But then we think about um, that mixture of what can we do that will enable us to achieve those things. Um, and what are the things that we've already got in train that will then support that? Um, so it will be a blend of the two. Um, and then also, you know, um, overlay what, what workforce do we have? What additional workforce requirements might we need from an estate's perspective? Do we have the available capacity? Do we have the available theatres? Whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's a line in all of that. And I think one of the critical things, and it's also a very difficult thing, is that we know that health and care is a complex environment and with that comes a multitude of different stakeholders and it's making sure that we engage with the right stakeholders one of the things that i haven't mentioned which is really critically important for us moving forward as well is how do we use digital uh, solutions more appropriately? Um, because I think there's so much opportunity that um, digital aspects can help us to transform the way that we deliver our services and the way that we can become more efficient. Um, so we very much recognise that that's part of our sustainability moving forward. How, how we use our electronic patient record, how we use our patient portal, um, and how we engage with our patients and, and you know, one of the bits about service change as well is then how, how are we appropriately co-producing service changes with our patients as well as with our partners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And on that front, I mean, you talked about your co-terminus with the ICP. So that's obviously looking at a, a defined area, defined population for a good proportion of your services. When you're looking at some of your uh, kind of more specialised services that you're delivering for a larger area, do you have different approaches to that, different decision-making processes? If you think about cancer, for example, engaging with cancer alliances, um, so I think some of the processes would be the same, but it's the stakeholders that would change so that there's certainly a much broader cohort of uh, stakeholders when you're dealing uh, or maybe a different a set of stakeholders. But actually, if I talk something like virtual wards, um, whilst the majority of our patient population is local, yeah, some of those service developments we absolutely are grappling with how do we take that forward for our surrounding ICSs how's that going to work so it isn't just specialized services it's also our um, DGH services as well so there's a lot of complexity and and just by virtue of where we're situated um, we have multiple ICSs so you know some providers are very lucky that they have pretty much one ICS but we're surrounded by a, a good number and again that just depends on where where you're situated in the country and, and again some of that is linked into um, what about accessibility and travel and you know a whole host of aspects there and while, while we're on that could you just expand on where things are with provider collaboratives and, and whether you're whether you're involved in any and how they're evolving so I'm not directly involved with a provider collaborative. And I think it's um, you know, one of my reflections is that sometimes some of these terms can mean different things to different people. Um, so provider collaborative isn't a term that is actively being used in, in our area, or certainly it's not something that I'm aware of. Um, so I think it's also being mindful that terms can be interchangeable where you are. Yeah, okay. No, that's really useful to, to get that definition because I think it's one of these terms that everyone assumes that every trust is part of one or more provider collaboratives and it's kind of a, almost a prescribed way of doing things. But obviously it comes down to people locally defining how things need to work in, in that particular part of the country. 
Yeah, and sorry, Tom, just sort of linked into that. But if I think about an ICS level, um, we are very much then looking at, you know, who are the right providers to take forward cohorts of activity. So although we might put fancy terms around something, there, there, there's something then in practice around how do we do what's right for our patient population and how do we utilise available capacity um, across the system. So uh, sometimes it's not letting the term get in the way of doing the right thing. Thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just what, one more uh, question, I suppose, for this part is um, probably an impossible one to answer, but how do you fund change? And that probably sounds very simplistic, but I think for, for our audience's benefit, obviously, you know, we, we see sometimes there's transformation money that's given for a particular objective. Sometimes there's kind of the uh, cost saving cost efficiency argument where if you invested a certain area and it will save money elsewhere or you just invest somewhere to put it elsewhere is it a mixture of all of those kinds of things how much money do you have at the moment to transform and how much of it is borrowing from elsewhere um so um great question and uh, yeah there is it's definitely not a simplistic answer um so if i think about um do we have a pot of money i wish we had a pot of money and that ties back into our productivity and efficiency challenge so you know we've got a productivity and efficiency challenge of 51 million pounds um but because the um some of the national goalposts have been ever changing around the financial arrangements and how we calculate um, what our um, internal budgets are. Um, that has um, meant that we're only just now clarifying. So, so we're now right in towards the end of May and we haven't yet got finalised our budgets. Um, we are only just finalising the totality of what our productivity and efficiency requirement is. So that's hugely challenging. Um, and um, what we know, as I mentioned before, is that um, in terms of being able to deliver our services, we have to be able to deliver more activity for the same amount of money, or we have to deliver more activity for less money. So um, ideally, we would have an investment pot because we know that there is always going to be something that we need to invest in. So if we create an investment pot, which we are doing, um, that means that that adds to what our productivity and efficiency requirement is overall. Um, so um, we have to then make an efficiency somewhere to be able Able to then provide that investment. There are some national monies available, so virtual wards, that comes with um, various investments. It's also being careful that some of those investments aren't necessarily uh, recurrent investments. So how do you um, establish services um, and make sure that they're sustainable moving forward? Um, there's still the commissioning discussions around service developments, but of course, commissioners don't have any new available monies. Um, so it's being as wise as we can do for every pound spent. Um, also thinking, um, you know, um, uh, some of the technology aspects, you know, the various sort of grants and bids that you can go for that isn't NHS funding. And sometimes we don't necessarily know what is available. Um, but if I think about sort of improvement, there's organisations like Health Foundation, um, you can put in bids um, and there can be money available for that. So there's a whole host of uh, avenues that can help. Um, and some of that can also be where, where you get people to help you transform pathways. So one of the things that we've just been currently talking about is, you know, where, where do we see the greatest opportunity from a productivity and efficiency perspective moving forward? And where we would love to get to is thinking more about end-to-end -end pathways, because at the moment we're quite traditional where we think about sort of outpatients, the ED attendants, the inpatient stay, the theatre aspect, but actually look at it from a patient journey perspective. And over time, that should then enable us to get more into thinking about that sort of 
further downstream um, of population health, um, but that's sort of you know quite a bit further forward. Um, and you know, if we're looking at you know, the pathway, how could we actually then potentially engage um, with pharma, medtech? Because some, you know, I think the key bit, and we were, I was speaking to colleagues about this this morning, is what what problem we're trying to solve. And um, sometimes we might be blind to what the problems are, or we might not necessarily know what a innovative solution is to that problem. And I think that's where it's really important to engage outside of the walls of the organization and the nhs to be able to help us to think and do differently yeah and that's yeah, that really positive i suppose the the, the approach yeah. that people have to maybe a slightly different mindset what are the in terms of transitioning to that end-to-end -end approach what are the the one or two of the key barriers you think to to kind of that becoming the norm uh, gosh, uh, where do you want me to start? Uh, so um, I think time is one of our biggest barriers, um, which goes back to um, staff and um, framing things in a, in a way that they can see that this is going to help them, it's going to support them. It's not yet another thing that we're asking you to do. It's about how can we make things easier for you, easier for your patients, easier for your colleagues. Um, so that's certainly a challenge. Um, thinking about integrated care, that's a challenge because of headspace, because of all of what's happening around creating those statutory organisations and there's only so much we can do. Um, then there's the, the challenges of the planning guidance requirements and the fact that there are so many different priorities that come down nationally. Um, how do you prioritise those priorities? Because we can't ask all of our staff um, to do everything. Um, workforce challenges, so available uh, workforce um, people retiring, um, do we have sufficient new starters, you know, certain um, staff areas, um, you know, we have very, very uh, acute challenges and that's not just within our sector, you know, um, GPs, you know, there's a whole multitude of different sectors where that's challenges. Um, you know, I'm thinking about challenges at ambulance sector, you know, they've got huge challenges um, in terms of, you know, handovers. So, so I think that uh, there are challenges, but then it's being able to create those challenges into opportunities. So if I think about um, our elective recovery challenge, you know, part of this is around how we frame things. So um, if um, particular clinicians are frustrated because they're not able to get their patients in to be able to operate on them, then that can be then about sort of if we configure things differently in outpatients that enables us to create um, some um, time. So it isn't necessarily about creating cost savings, but if we can release capacity of staff to be able to then do something else, that can then enable us to be able to address some of our waiting list issues. So I think sort of reframing is, is really important. Um, I think we need to also get better at how we co and we co-produce with our patients um, and um, how we engage with them. So I think that's more of a, um, a building opportunity around things. Um, but I'd say that there's some of our sort of and and we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. How well, quite well, 20 years and I've only just sort of really got into that. Um, so we don't know whether we're going to have another a wave. Um, there's a lot of other sort of uh, so some of the African viruses are coming along. Um, yeah, that that sort of uh, taken us uh, a little uh, left field. So there's always something that comes along. Who knows what's going to happen with elections? Are we going to have a change in government? Then you get a change in policy. So the list sort of goes <laughs> off. It's always it's always seeing where there's opportunities, and I think that communications is so important and how we frame things from a hearts and minds perspective that really yeah. connects people so they can see why it's going to make a difference to them and why it will make a difference to their and our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just as a very quick deviation, it's not where we were planning to go. Are you planning for another pandemic or for, for another wave or is it back of the mind at the moment? 
<laughs> I don't think it's ever back of the mind. Um, but if I think where we are in the organisation, so um, we've made recent decisions in terms of relaxing some of our social distancing rules. Um, so that's meant that we've got more available space to be able to treat more patients. Um, so, um, so we've certainly looking at the numbers, the numbers have significantly dropped. So that's given us um, cautious optimism that we can make those changes. Um, but we've always got to absolutely be mindful of what our numbers of patients are telling us. And at any point, potentially, we might need to make change. Well, we would need to make changes, um, but we're working on fingers crossed. We won't see another spike. That would yeah, be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> we won't talk any more about the pandemic. I think we've done enough of that. Um, so you've mentioned them a couple of times, virtual wards, uh, mm -hmm. and they've been kind of heralded as central to a lot of the evolution of the NHS. Can you just describe a bit about how they work in practice, uh, how your system is approaching them? Yeah. Um, so um, I think it's important to say virtual wards isn't something new. Um, so uh, it might be a new term that people are hearing. Um, but if I think about some of our services and some of it's come from uh, the pandemic. Um, so how we treat uh, some of our COVID patients. So um, once uh, they were discharged, they were essentially put into a, a virtual ward to be able to care for them because they didn't need to be in an inpatient bed. But there was still something about their condition that meant that we couldn't discharge from our care. Um, our OPAT service, so how we uh, deliver antimicrobial therapies, um, that has been set up a good number of years. It's an amazing service. Um, and um, that sort of, you know, th those two services are very much helping us to then think about what have we got in place that is then um, replicable elsewhere. So, um, so this is very much in partnership with um, ICS, ICP colleagues. Um, but in terms of how the virtual world works is that there are cohorts of patients who don't necessarily need to be in an inpatient bed, but there is something physically about their condition where they, they still need some ongoing monitoring treatment, but that monitoring and treatment doesn't necessarily need to happen in an inpatient bed. So they can then be discharged to their place of residence. And I think I use the term place of residence because it doesn't just have to be a patient's home. It could be um, a care home, a nursing home. Um, and then there's different levels of care that could be provided. Um, so um, it could be um, some um, investigations, so like the sort of um, um, intravenous um, antimicrobials. Um, it could be that they're awaiting some sort of diagnostics. Um, or it could be um, something then about virtual monitoring, so actually having some kit to do some monitoring from home. And then that what we're just working through is, what would that then look like in terms of the interface with various clinical staff? And within that, how do we establish a virtual ward um, on our electronic patient record? And, and then working through what happens if there's an exacerbation? What happens if there was an emergency? How do we then deal with that? Um, so I think it's, you know, I was having conversations with colleagues and there's lots of things that we can do to improve capacity. But generally, things like this, um, so big structural changes, are the ones that make the significant difference of releasing capacity. So we see this as um, a major uh, service development to enable us to get through next winter. Um, we don't yet know um, whether it's going to achieve the financial savings that are being um, proposed nationally. We don't know whether um, the, um, the, the sort of the requirements of the numbers of patients going through the virtual ward are going to be achievable. But what we're very mindful of is we, we don't want this to be a tick box exercise. We want to make sure that this is about where we have got patients in our beds how can we appropriately and safely transfer them and admit them into a virtual ward so we then have available capacity to be able to then treat other patients? 
and we're focusing on those inpatients at the moment, but we also then recognise that there are patients who are within our emergency department who could um, have an admission prevented by then being um, admitted into the virtual ward. But how you then sort of show that that was a prevented admission is, is slightly, slightly more difficult. Um, so, so that's sort of, that's pretty much what the virtual ward is um, and the approach. And yeah, we, it, it is such, such a key development for us and for others. Yeah, okay, and that, that's a really good overview. So in terms of that piece around how you are identifying which groups to focus on, um, is it is it a case that you're kind of looking at all your all your um, actual wards, whatever the right, whatever the right word is, and thinking, okay, what what can we do for this cohort? What what parcels of their care can be delivered remotely? How many of those people are eligible? how do we transition them how do we support them is, is it a case of just working through it systematically like that yeah pr pretty much so the national guidance stipulates that we need to be looking at acute respiratory infection but what actually is acute respiratory infection so that's come from our respiratory consultants um and also frailty um and um then over and above that's exactly as what you've described tom so what we've been uh, starting to do is going across a number of our inpatient wards and completing audits to then determine the patients that are in inpatient beds on those wards, how many of those could be appropriately discharged to a virtual ward, and then that's helping us to determine by specialty what our patient cohort could be and also what's really important is uh, where have we got sort of um, champions you know who, who can we work with initially from a medical and from a nursing perspective and and also i think it's really important to note that you know it is a very much a multidisciplinary um, environment therapists are critical pharmacists are critical um, ahps um, because of the diagnostics um, so so it's involving a whole range of colleagues. But I think what's also important is it's not just about adults, it's also about paediatric patients. So we have uh, an operational virtual ward operational group that's represented from each of our clinical divisions. And it's not just medical patients, it's surgical patients as well. And I think it's really interesting as we've been having these discussions is then um, you know, seeing colleagues recognize the opportunity because again the framing of this um, can enable us to then get our other patients in to be able to treat them to be able to operate on them um, and then in terms of some of the infrastructure aspects because um, this is such a big development we've we've been working through the clinical governance aspects so where do these um, patients sit so we've decided that they will sit with one within one of our clinical divisions over time we would like it to sit within the icp um, but that infrastructure isn't there yet um, and then also tied into that to be able to progress this, um, we've gone out to advert uh, for a clinical director, an operations manager, a lead nurse, because um, we need those individuals to be able to drive forward to have the, the um, respective conversations with colleagues to gain that engagement. And tied into that is um, as we start to go live with various services, test things out, what data do we need to be able to show whether um, we're getting the intended um, outcomes. Um, hopefully, we're not going to then have any adverse events, um, but making sure, as I say, we've got the right data to be captured to be able to monitor qualitative and quantitatively all of those various aspects. Yeah, you mentioned those roles that you've to recruit for kind of the leadership for that. Just wondering, are you looking for a slightly different skill set for those people that, that they have that understanding of kind of data and digital and an innovative mindset to, to kind of evolve the virtual world thing as well as just managing it? 
Yeah, very much so. So there is something there about vision and thinking differently. Um, so, um, you know, if I, I think back to, um, yes, one of the interviews that we've had, you know, being able to, to think about the, the integrated aspect. So it's not just about the four walls of Cambridge University hospitals and also the recognition that the patient cohorts who we might initially put through may not be the patient cohorts who go through in two, three years time. How we use digital technologies, remote monitoring. So, so yeah, I think someone that has uh, individuals that have got that sort of um, strategic vision of what this could look like and how it needs to be different are really important. And and also recognizing that that skill set may not necessarily lie within um, the acute setting. You. Um, being very open to community colleagues um so you essentially we 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 want the best people for the roles that are going to really innovatively take forward this service development yeah and it, it's a really interesting one because thinking about uh, let's say a cardiology ward something like that where you've got people that are there for a particular reason so you kind of think okay well let's have a virtual cardiology ward actually as soon as they're leaving the hospital building they're not a card cardiology number they're a person with probably several different conditions so actually it's it's not necessarily that idea of yeah virtual wards by by specialty is it it's how do we segment how do we respond to to patients and their own needs which is quite a different challenge to the the traditional mode of care delivery i suppose yeah, and I think sort of that bit around the multiple conditions, you know, we, we, we've talked about that and I think that's a really interesting one around. We also have to be mindful. And you know, if I think about so some of my commissioning conversations for years past, um, how, you know, we can admit patients and we want to do the right thing for those patients. And we can end up then looking um, much more holistically at the patient and potentially treating them for other conditions. And, you know, I would remember sort of primary care colleagues, commissioning colleagues saying, but, you know, Debbie, we're admitting them for this reason, not for those other reasons. So we're just being very mindful that um, it's not about treating the totality of the patient and all of their conditions. Um, but, you know, I think there's, again, it's that vision piece that there are things that that could lend itself to further down the line. Yeah, okay. And in terms of virtual wards, what are the risks with those and how do you mitigate them? Uh, so I think one of the key risks that we've been talking about is a lack of engagement from clinical colleagues. So um, a lack of trust. Um, so um, uh, seeing that it's too risky to place my patient in a virtual ward. Um, so how we can then, as I was talking about, when we go, how do we use our champions? Um, how do we use our data? How we effectively communicate, share the learning, um, celebrate the successes. Um, if things haven't gone as anticipated, being very honest around that. Um, patients, uh, so, um, you know, mindful that some patients may think that I'm not going to have as good a care if I'm going to be discharged home. But actually thinking about the overall benefits, you know, patients get much better sleep when they're at home. They have their own sort of care arrangements in their home setting. They might have pets at home that are going to help them in terms of their recovery. So there's a whole host of things, again, from a hearts and minds perspective and making sure that we've got all the right information for our patients. So if something goes wrong, who do you contact and again being mindful of sort of um, the risk that people might then intuitively go to their GP and you know primary care being worried about that so I think it's just sort of working through with colleagues to understand what their concerns are how we then address those what measures we need to put in place but also that constant evaluation using our data to well understand it are things going as anticipated do we have any unintended consequences do we have any uh, unintended readmissions um so so just being very mindful of that and then addressing as we go along and, and constantly iterating wonderful thank you debbie um, so virtual wards aside the, the other area that i think is sort of very uh important to a lot of our audience is the idea of hospital care moving into primary and community settings and that happens in a whole range of, of areas and it's 
well established in some areas. If there's a drive to do more of that and moving things out of hospital closer to the patient, how do you start to approach transitions like that? So um, I think sort of the, the key um, state, you know, who, are, who are the key stakeholders, identifying them and really understanding what we're trying to achieve there. So as you were speaking, Tom, the one thing which sort of came to mind, um, which actually ties into virtual wards, was the community diagnostic hubs. Um, so, you know, that recognition that there are um, hosts of diagnostic activity that could be appropriately managed in a community setting. So we recognise that once those um, diagnostic hubs are established, there are then cohorts of patients who could go into a virtual ward setting and then have their diagnostics in the community. So it's also sort of putting linkages with other um programs of work where, where appropriate. Um, I think it's understanding priority. So going back to what I mentioned, um, ICP, ICS level, what, what are the priorities um, and how can we collectively work together? But, but also recognizing that we don't have the headspace to do everything. So if you think about our clinical colleagues or operational colleagues, there's all the challenges um, that they need to address on a daily basis. So how will this complement and make it better for them, make it better for the, their patients rather than, as I've mentioned before, yet another thing to do? So I think it's being really clear if we're looking to move activity out into another setting, what, what are the benefits? How can we quantify those? Um, and then, yeah, as with any service development, finding the right people to engage with who can support that, um, having uh, senior sponsors and, um, you know, things don't go right, how your senior sponsors can help you to sort of um, have the right conversations and, and hopefully unblock things. Um, I think, sorry, actually, one of the, the challenges that um, I didn't mention and sort of comes to mind now, if I think about some of the service developments that we've taken forward in the past, where we've you know, always had that principle of placing the patients at the heart, doing what's right for our patients. Um, generally, in my experience, it's the money that's got in the way. Um, so I think that that will continue to be a challenge particularly as um, some of the, you know, the financial arrangements are still being worked through and what will that then actually mean at a, an ICS level? So are we going to get into sort of different arrangements around how um, pathways of care are paid? Um, so uh, I think that's going to be um, another complexity to, to work through and make sure that it doesn't inhibit, it complements. Do you, do you think the ICP might become the vehicle for that, where, the, where there looks to be a, a more integrated pathway and they, when the structure is in place and they start to have that delegated authority and, and budgets to do those sorts of things? I, I would hope so, Tom. I really, really do. Um, so, you know, if I think about, you know, those of us that have been in health for a good few years, um, we've, we've been trying to do this for so many years. And I genuinely really hope that this is going to be the vehicle that will actually crack crack that because, um, yeah, it, it's just so, so fundamentally important. Yeah. Okay. So that piece. So if the ICS, oh, sorry, ICP is taking responsibility for those kinds of things, what do you see the trusts still doing in the future? What do you see PCNs doing in the future, or or is it not as distinct as that? Does it all just become a, a conversation about what should we be doing? Um, well, I think you know, in terms of hospitals, will still need to provide care for particular cohorts of patients. I think it's working out what are the what are the cohorts of patients that need to be managed in the appropriate setting. So, you know, there are some services um, that still need to be delivered in a hospital setting, in a specialist setting, um, critical care. You know, that there are some obvious ones. Um, but absolutely accept that there are um, cohorts of patients who don't need to be managed in a hospital setting. But also, if I think something like patient initiated follow ups, they don't necessarily then need to be managed by primary care. So I think it's also really important that we um, 
it's, someone uses the analogy was the wallpaper and the sort of the, the bubble on the wallpaper that when you're sort of you know putting the wallpaper up you don't sort of move that bubble to another sort of area so it's just being mindful that we don't necessarily pass a problem to another part of the health and care system um, and you know if we're looking at sort of you know, mentioned workforce challenges um, do we have sufficient workforce in primary community care to be able to deal with some of those um, changes and and I very much sort of see in the future that I'm well I hope that we'll be more fluid so you know just because you're employed by one organization doesn't necessarily mean that you only provide care within that one organization so how can we truly break down some of those organizational barriers so that um, you can provide care in different settings regardless of who pays for you and who holds your contract. Yeah, lovely. Thank you, Debbie. Um, you mentioned digital earlier as a, a key part of this. Have you got an example of, obviously, virtual wards aside, have you got an example of how you're using digital, embracing digital to improve the way that you're working? Yeah, um, so a couple of examples, well, three examples. Um, so um, robotic process automation. So there are, um, each and every one of us will do repetitive tasks. So are there tasks that we can then automate through um, a robot? Um, that means that we don't manually have to continually enter that data. So we've been doing some of that work within outpatients where we get um, letters coming through from primary care and streamlined um, that process and saved hundreds of hours um, and um, that's meant that we've no longer got a backlog, that we had a backlog there for, I think, from what people have said, feels like the word dot. Um, so how can we then extend that across to other areas? Um, another bit would be digital dictation. Um, so how can, um, how can we enter using that um, into our electronic patient record and not just clinicians but again um, using that approach to save time typing up because you know quite often uh, doctors might um, dictate a letter and then they send it to the secretary secretary does typing up um, so there's a lot of the efficiencies that just being smarter around how we look at our processes. Um, the other bit thinking from our patient perspective goes back to um, our patient portal. Um, so you know, thinking about being a patient, um, I, you know, the other day um, I um, had a notification on the patient portal to say I'd got two appointments that came uh, that had been booked, went on, got all that information, great, knew exactly what, what was what, where I needed to go. And then days later, I got two um, letters in the post and uh, a lot of paper generated and I've thrown it in the bin, haven't even looked at it because I already knew what it said electronically. I think it's also important though with some of the digital aspects, um, recognising that not everyone has access to digital technologies. Um, but I think we, we need to be thinking about reframing things. So starting with that's the way we do things unless there is a good reason why we don't do it. Um, but there, there's, you know, um, remote monitoring, how, how we can use our patient portal to do patient questionnaires, that there's so much opportunity. Um, and, you know, we, we've just as an organisation been pulling together our digital strategy because we absolutely see that as underpinning how we are then sustainable moving forward. Yeah. So, so I mean, a lot of our, our audience will be thinking digital and thinking it's all about AI and, you know, crazy things like that, which inevitably that's on the horizon. But actually for you still, it's it's just a case of how do we do things smarter, do things better. Oh, and, and we've, we've got the AI as well. So yeah. uh, don't, don't sort of think that we haven't. Um, but I'm just sort of maybe using some different examples. Yeah. Um, that you know that, that digital has just got even just bits around do we use our EPR appropriately do we use all of the functionality within that and we know that we don't so um, and I think for me that then goes back to conversations we've been having around really getting into pathways that if you do that and get underneath the bonus of what's going on then you can understand what happens at every point where have we got in 
inefficiencies and what can we do differently to address those but yeah I mean digital covers so so many avenues and you know we're very fortunate in terms of where we are in the country that there's uh, you know lots of opportunity of, of, of and data data is a huge part of that as well yeah brilliant thank you um so we're coming towards the end i've just got a couple more questions so for anyone that is listening uh, that wants to help the nhs to to transform services what advice would you give them in helping to get things off the ground um so i i would think about what what is your offer um so understanding what the where organization systems are practically so um almost sort of what's your elevator pitch you know how how do you get in and speak to the the one person that is going to listen that thinks wow that's the sort of thing that we need some help with so so doing your homework um understanding where the challenges lie but where you might have an opportunity to help so what 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 is your offer um and why is that going to make a difference to those individuals um why is it going to make a difference for patients how how are you going to sort of help to improve patient outcomes um experience um thinking about the particularly the planning guidance requirements what what could you do um that would then enable efficiencies to be created um how you might be able to help um individuals organization systems do more for less more for the same um, so it's really being mindful of the current pressures and and also recognizing that sometimes we're in that wood for trees moment that we can't necessarily see some of the opportunities because we're so embroiled in the day-to-day -day. and having that fresh pair of eyes um, can be hugely valuable so, so it's having a clear sort of specific offer and also knowing that that is relevant to the particular setting, the particular geography, the particular yeah. context of, of where you're taking it rather than just here's a thing that we're going to take out to everyone and see if anyone will, will pick it up. Definitely. And, and also think about who you're going to engage with. Um, so um, just just a sort of a, a personal sort of um, perspective. Um, I get lots of lots of emails, as does everyone else. Um, my pet hate for emails is getting that sort of you've just changed my name for somebody else's. And it's just a sort of, a, you know, an auto generated email where it's got no personal touch. And actually, um, that just goes straight into my uh, delete <laughs> items. So it's, it's just really thinking how you can target and getting the right individuals um, to hear you. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Debbie. And and if you've got a piece of string handy there, how how long do you think it might take, or how long would it reasonably, or, or might you anticipate it taking to transform a care pathway? Oh, $60 million question there. Um, I don't know. And that's something that we're sort of grappling with, with our end-to-end -end pathway work, thinking about how long is it going to take us to um, to do that type of approach and how many can we do at one time um, so it's it's a bit of a sort of uncharted territory and also what do you mean by transform a care pathway how big is the care pathway how do you um, identify a care pathway that can mean different things to different people is it truly end-to-end -end? is it going out of uh, hospital into community so I would like to um, maybe just have some uh, quantifying sort of uh, um, points to be able to more fully answer but yeah I, I would love to know the answer to that because I think if and but that's what we need to get into that's what we need to start doing to be able to understand so we've then got a role in program of work to, to take that forward yeah, so I guess, again, for our audience, it's kind of that bit around do your homework, understand the challenge and, and manage expectations going sort of going into it that it might be a quick change that that's relatively straightforward, but it might be a much more complex piece depending on, on what it is. Yeah, I mean, some some check, I mean, go back to where I started in the introduction, some things can happen overnight. It just sort of, it depends, and it depends on the will. Uh, it depends on the framing. Um, and if everyone's aligned, my gosh, then you can take that forward very quickly. 
Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Debbie. So um, final question from me, um, just a quick one to end with. If you, uh, if you could ask for one piece of support from industry to help maximise the impact of your projects, what would it be? Um, I think the live thing for me, Tom, is is what what we've been speaking about regarding the, the pathways. So it's that sort of where we identify where there are problems, how we can be helped to find solutions. Um, so you know, one of one of our biggest frustrations, and I'm not not directing this towards industry, um, but is being told what we already know, um, and. Um, I think, um, yeah, to, to be able to just have a you know, critical, um, friendly pair of eyes to sort of say, well, have you thought about this? What about that? Um, so, so for me, I think it's the, the pathway work and how, how they can help us around the productivity and efficiency challenges that we're grappling with, um, because they are very, very acute at the moment. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Debbie. Um, Thank you for taking your, your time out this afternoon to, to speak with me. It's been hugely illuminating and, and I'm sure enjoyed by all. Um, I will be back on the 17th of June speaking with Tom Callis, who is the lead pharmacist from East Cornwall PCN, uh, about the clinical pharmacist role, some interesting and surprising things that people are already doing in those kind of roles and how this and, and other additional roles might evolve and, and the support they might need. So. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, if you need any help with uh, any of your market access activities from strategy and pricing through to uh, commercial field tools, communication tools, please drop us a line, info at mtechaccess.co.uk. Um, see you on June 17th. Thanks again to Debbie and uh, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.